0: If you have your Bible, please turn to Job chapter 19 as we continue what we are calling a short series on defiant hope. The whole idea came to me on Easter morning when I was texting back and forth with George Robertson at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. I asked him what I could pray for, and he said, pray for those who grieve that they might have defiant hope. And I love that term. I shared it with Bill and Diane Arnold. They love the term as well. Defiant hope is a hope that fights back. A a hope that resists despair. A hope that's defiant against depression and discouragement and doubt. A hope that struggles to to survive in the midst of a hopeless world. You know, we talk about defiant hope it stands up against the enemy and the accusers it's the reason we read again psalm 42 it's a it's a defiant hope that talks to itself why are you in so despair why are you so downcast oh my soul put your hope in god yet i will praise him my savior and my god a defiant hope preaches to itself maybe not a long sermon, maybe three or four verses, but those places where you find yourself getting hopelessly uh, despairing, discouraged, despondent, find you four or five verses that you can preach to yourself. The Word of God feeds our faith, feeds our hope. It's a weapon that we do use when we're fighting for our hope. We define defiant hope, we define hope as a faith that looks forward, with unshakable confidence to the promises of God and the power of God, regardless of what the circumstances look like. We look forward to the promises of God being fulfilled by the power of God, regardless of what the circumstances look like. Let's read Job chapter 19, starting in 13. Job is responding to one of his miserable counselors, Bildab, and Bildad has accused him once again of being an evil, wicked, no-good person and has uh, created and poured down on him a hopeless uh, verbiage. 1913 He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservant count me as a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in a rock forever I know that my Redeemer lives and at the end he will stand upon the earth and after my flesh has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God I myself will see him with my own eyes I and not another how my heart yearns within me this is God's Word to God's people let us pray father by the power Of your word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the hope of the resurrection build in our lives a defiant faith that believes in the promises of God, even the salvation of our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Charlie Brown goes to Lucy and says, Everything seems hopeless. I'm completely distressed. Lucy, in her psychiatry booth, says, Go home and eat a jelly bread sandwich folded over, that'll be five cents please. Charlie Brown leaves, Lucy props her feet up, there are some cures you just don't learn about in med school. Don't you wish it was that easy to deal with feelings of hopelessness and despair? That you could just eat something we call comfort food and everything be okay? And what we have going on in uh, the book of Job is that Job is struggling, uh, fighting to keep his head above water and to have hope in God. He feels like God has turned against him. And yet in the midst of this, all of this has happened to him. We'll talk about it in a minute. All of this has happened to him in in chapter 13, verse 15. He makes this great statement. Though he slay me. Yet I will trust in Him. Regardless of what happens in my life, I will hope in Him. Let's look at this topic under three major headings. How hope uh, defies hopeless situations. How hope defies foes as well as friends and how hope defies because it believes a Redeemer is coming. Hope is defiant in hopeless situations. Is anybody's situation worse than Job's? Has it ever been worse than Job's? The context to this verse in this chapter is very crucial to our understanding. So we need to have the storyline clear in our heart that God is in heaven And the angels come to give a report. And when they come in to give a report, uh, God asks the Satan that uses the definitive article. He asks the Satan, what have you been doing? And Satan said, I've been going back and forth on the earth. And And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then what the Satan says is this. Well, is there any reason why he's for you? You have built a hedge around him. Everything's just going swimmingly for him. And so if you take that hedge away, he'll curse you and die. And God allows the hedge to be taken away and for Satan to have after Job. But he draws a limit. He says, you can't touch Job. And so you know what happens in the first chapter You have the enemies of God coming down from one area, and they kill this livestock, and the other enemies coming down from this area, and they're killing the other livestock. And then you have a wind blows down the tent, and in the tent are all his children, and Job's children are killed. And then Job makes his statement, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he comes back to heaven to give a report and God says it again, Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, upright, feareth God. Uh, No one on earth like him. And he said, Well, if you let me at him, let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, You can have at him, but you cannot take his life. He draws a line around the activity of the evil one. And so the next thing we see is Job is full of sores and he's full of some kind of skin disease and he's taking pieces of broken pottery and he's scraping his scabs off and he appears to be hopeless, but he's not. His wife comes to him and says, Curse God and die! And he says, Oh, silly woman, should we take good from God and not evil? And he does exactly the opposite of what Satan suggests. He maintains that though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. But do you believe it was easy to maintain hope in that situation? No livestock. No house. No children. No friends. Your health taken away from you. And you have the ability to say, I'll trust our hope in God. Christians have to fight for hope sometimes. We have to use the Word of God and use it as a sword of the Spirit against the evil one. And in cases like this, we really have to fight where people come up to Job, we'll see later, and they give him pat answers that really don't fit his situation. The enemy's using them to discourage him. And he is struggling to have hope. You can see that as his language and his conversation is very abrupt later on. And so he says some harsh things, but yet he never gives up that hope, although he's struggling to to maintain it. I can remember Hal Farnsworth in days of Mississippi State. Hal came here a couple of months ago and talked about his new ministry in Africa. But Hal would have a student, RUF student, come to him and talk about struggles. And he was surprised as a Christian he was struggling. And Hal said, Brother, are you struggling to be free? Are you free to struggle? And he said, As Christians, we're free to struggle. We're free to admit some things that we're dealing with. We're, we're free to admit that I'm discouraged. I'm I'm despairing. I'm a sinner. I feel my guilt. I wonder if God loves me. Why is this happening to me? I'm trying to understand life. I don't get it. Well, if you have those questions, then the book of Job is for you. And so Job is fighting for his hope. He's keeping his powder dry as he uses the word of God as ammunition against the enemy. He operates, one writer said, I got in Ben's library. Mine is in boxes and foolish me, didn't label them, so don't know where anything is. It's in one of those 31 boxes. But Ben uh, un- uncovered his and in the book on Job, I found that Job has these five points that he uses to deal with his situation. And maybe you ought to think about these as well. One, he says God is sovereign. God reigns over all. God is, God is not allowing one thing to happen that he's not overseeing. God is just. God will do what is right. And then Job operates on the principle that I am righteous. Not that he's perfect or he's sinless, but God himself has declared Job to be blameless, righteous. There's no one like him. And somehow, in some way, deep in his heart, he understands that by faith he is right with God. He believes that God cares, that God is not against him, although he might say it at times. And besides God caring and God being declaring him righteous, that suffering for a Christian is a real thing. What are the five or six principles that keep you afloat in the midst of difficult times? Do you have some things that you can just run down your through your mind and heart and say, I, I believe these, help my unbelief. I have a sheet of uh, promises that I use to my own heart and I have shared them with other people. I remember when my dad was in the hospital and oh so sick, I I gave them to him and he put them on the the wall or on the bulletin board and some nurse liked them so much she took them I had to go replace them. I remember giving them to Jonna's mother and Jonna. But when I am fighting a situation of discouragement or despair, there are just several things that I preach to myself that are promises of God that I have hope in, that I I know are true. God is sovereign. God is good. God is wise. God loves me as His own child. God has promised good to me. God has promised never to leave me and never to forsake me. God has promised that all bad things will work together for my good. And he has promised that even if I die, I will have gained heaven and his presence. And as I go through those eight or nine different promises over and over again, they help my faith to stay afloat. See, hope defies hopeless situation it fights back with the word of God the second thing we see here is hope not only defies hopeless situation it it defies friends and foes and worthless counselors not talking about counselors in general but these three in particular but hope fights back against friend and foe and evil worthless counselors You have these three friends come to Job. He's on the ash heap, the dung heap, the the thing outside of town where they take the ashes from the sacrifice and they dump them out and they they take the people that are guilty of blasphemy that are executed and they're outside of town and probably the garbage is outside of town. The last place you want to be is on the ash heap outside of town and, and that's where Job is. And his three best friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, later, come to see him. And for the first seven days, they sit silently and just commiserate with him. And then when they open their mouths, they begin to be people who pile on. They believe one thing. They believe another Lucy uh, psychiatrist. All you get is what you deserve, nothing less and nothing more. That's their attitude. These are three, quote, godly men who basically say you're getting what you deserve, nothing less and nothing more. Eliphaz is a gentleman, but he bases his whole view of, of counseling or, or exhortation on this dream that he got. I had a vision, Job, and God told me in a dream. How can you argue with a dream? Well, I can argue with a dream. I can say it might have been the tacos you ate last night. Don't trust dreams. But he comes with these dreams and visions, and I saw and I heard, and not on the Word of God. And he says, God is so good that He would not treat His people like this, so you must not be a person of God. Bildad comes in. He's not as nice. He basically says, you got what you deserve. And your children got what they deserve. They were evil and they deserved to die. Look it up. That's what he said. And then Zophar comes, and what he says is, you're really getting off easy. And you're not getting what you deserve. God is being gracious. And you know what you have to realize when you read the book of Job? All the counselors are wrong. Everything they say is probably true, but it misapplies to the situation. I'll give an illustration. It's a little personal maybe, my, my mom had a, a place on her, I forgot, maybe that was where I had to place, but had a place on her, and we were diagnosed it as a wart, and I think maybe the nurse had diagnosed it as a wart, not throwing her under the bus, and so we got some compound W, you know, and you put it on there, you know, and it's supposed to make the wart go away, and we go to the doctor, We said, you know, we thought this compound W would make the wart go away. And Dr. Clark says compound W does work on warts, but it doesn't do anything for skin cancer. We had applied the right medicine to the wrong disease. And that's exactly what these people are doing. They are describing how God treats the evil, but that's not Job. Everybody always is applying in these Old Testament counseling sessions. They're they're applying the idea, you know, that who sinned? What sin have you done? Remember in John nine, the the man born blind was begging, and the disciples asked Jesus, "Hey, there's a blind man. Who sinned? Him or his mother?" In other words, it's got to be sin. And Jesus said, "It's not him or his mother." He was born that way for the glory of God, so I could glorify myself with His healing right now today. You cannot draw a straight line from your sin to your illness or to anybody else's. That our sufferings are the way that God uses to make us more like Christ. They chip away at some of the sin and some of the self-righteousness in our life and we're formed more into the image of Christ. So what Job is wanting, he says, I want a advocate. You kind of have to look at, you can write it down, but you look at 16 verse 19. And I'll read it to you. Job says this, even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate, my mediator is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads to his friend. Job says I have an advocate on high he intercedes for me as a friend and he pleads for me Doesn't that sound pretty new testimony Looking back we can see what we Job didn't have a full-orbed understanding of Christ or anything like that, but he understood there was in heaven somebody pleading his case that everybody wasn't against him. And he had this one that was his friend. What he wants is a Redeemer. A Redeemer is, in Job 19, going back there, a Redeemer is the word goel. G-O-E-L you have run into that hebrew word in the book of ruth and ruth wants a kinsman redeemer that's a goel remember the book remember the story of of ruth quickly ruth and naomi come back to bethlehem because the famine's over and that's where their land is and they are both widows and so ruth goes to his field and she gleans the edges of the field like poor and the widows do and Boaz comes and he's good to her and he lets, him, lets her dip her bread and his juice and stuff like that and she goes home and I ran into this guy he's really nice he's really great his name is Boaz she goes Boaz he's your kinsman redeemer he's the one that's got to take care of you that's got to defend you you go down to the threshing floor tonight and you lay at his feet and when he wakes up and says hey who's there then you say it's, it's Ruth and you're my kinsman redeemer redeem me and he says, I am, but I'm not the nearest one. So the next day, they go to town. He goes to town, runs into ten elders uh, at the gate. And he says, hey, here comes my the nearest kinsman, Redeemer. And he says, hey, will you come over here? And they come over there to the elders, and they're talking about it. And he says, uh, Boaz says, do you want to redeem the widow's land? And he says, of course I do. And then Boaz says, well when you get the land, you get two widows. And he said, well, let me think about that. And he makes a statement, I don't want to jeopardize my own property. And so he wouldn't, he wouldn't redeem her. And so Boaz said, I'll redeem her. And they trade sandals, which was a way of sealing the deal. And from that day on, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, the goel. And what... Job is praying as I need a Goel, and I know I have one. One that will speak on my behalf, look after my interests. I know my Goel, my Redeemer, lives. As bad as his friends were, Job understood he had a Redeemer in heaven. I know my Redeemer lives. You see, when people accuse you, or the evil one accuses you, do you realize you have an advocate in heaven? If anyone sins with the Father, 1 John, he has an advocate with the Father, speaks on his behalf. We have a high priest who's sympathetic. Do you really, you know, when your conscience is, bothering you when you know somebody throws sin up in your face that you've done or or your accusers the Satan himself throws up accusations against you. Can I can you can I believe what you did? You're a Christian. You're a pastor and you did that. You're not you know, you're not able to reach God. He doesn't hear your prayers. He doesn't love you. Do you realize you have someone clearing his throat? And I want to speak on his behalf. He'll rise like he did with Stephen, was stoned to death. He rose to be his advocate and receive him into heaven. You read about Martin Luther, and Martin Luther. How do I say this? He was an earthy man. And he said some things that ministers usually wouldn't say and do some things ministers wouldn't do. He was a godly man. But Martin Luther believed that uh, the devil attacked him personally. And he believed that the devil would come to him and accuse him. And I want to read this little section. It came out of a book written in the 1800s. But it says, uh, One night in a dream Luther had a dream that Satan had come to accuse him and so Luther charges him to say take up the slate there that lies on the table write down all the sins you've charged me with and if you can think of any more additional append them to it and Satan rejoiced to do it and he wrote all the sins down and here's what Luther says take up the slate and write as I shall dictate to you my sins are many My transgressions in the sight of the holy God are countless as the hairs on my head, and in me there dwelleth no good thing. But Satan, after the last sin you have recorded, write this verse that I shall repeat to you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. The old hymn writer says, Well, might the accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them all and thousand more. My God knoweth none. God remembers our sins no more. And in the midst of our friends and foes giving us uh, awful counsel, uh, remember the Savior has forgiven you. Hope defies hopelessness because the Redeemer lives. Job makes his grand statement. I know that my Redeemer, King James, liveth, and he will take his stand on the earth. I know, hope is certain. I know, I know, I know I have a Redeemer. And one day he will stand on this earth. And when you look at that verse, he says, stand upon the earth. It could be translated, stand over my grave. One day the Redeemer will stand over my grave. And then he says something amazing. And after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes and not another. Job makes the hopeful, logical jump that there's a life ever after. And not just in a spiritual, ghostly sense but he believes that I'm going to be vindicated, I'm going to be justified, and I'm going to be declared all these people wrong, but it's going to happen after I die. But it's going to happen after I die. And he yearns for that. He yearns for his resurrection. Isn't that what Paul said? We talked about that Friday. Karen, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I prefer to be with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is great gain. And although Job does not have all the information and all the revelation that we have, somehow he knew and hoped and yearned for the resurrection of the dead. Amazing. I know you might tire of some of the things I use, but maybe the repetition will burn them into your memory and you can recall them at time of need. Catechism says this. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The soul of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory And their bodies still being united to Christ. Do rest in the grave until the resurrection. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory. Shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. And made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. Job wanted his case written with a chisel of iron on a stone so nobody will ever forget it. He didn't get that, but he got something better. His hope is written in the Word of God that in the midst of all of our struggles, we too may have hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for the amazing faith that you worked in his life by your grace. And what we see looking back, uh, we know that we have an advocate. We know we have a redeemer. We know we have a mediator. And one day he will stand on this earth and make all things right. And he will declare us righteous because of our faith in you. Until that day, keep us hopeful and faithful in the name of Jesus. Amen.